Alright folks, it's Des Blanchard here, I'm your host of this podcast and I'm with the legendary Kevin Jackson. Now, <laughs> Kevin, thanks for joining us. No, thank you very much Des. Now, there's some backstory here, we've been chatting for quite some time yeah. on Twitter and uh, this is the first time we've actually met in person or in real life as they say. Right, it's amazing how the type of relationships you can build over social media. It, it isn't just, and uh, <laughs> what's interesting is walking around the floor uh, here at uh, IBM Interconnect 2017 at uh, Las Vegas, there's like 25,000 attendees, um, uh, including IBM staff and, and the uh, folk on the floor with their stands. Right. And the number of folk who just walk up and say hi, and, and they're followers and they're engaged online, but uh, you haven't actually met them in real life. Right, there was a gentleman from AT&T. I was uh, just walking and he came up to me and he said, oh, you're, Kip, you're Kevin Jackson. He said, oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like uh, roadies around. You don't even know it, right? And they checked my hand up and he said he'd been following me. But the whole social media thing has created uh, a community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, we've now sort of transcended, if that's the right word, from this... Uh, experience of meeting people in real life and sort of building friendships that way to building friendships through any medium we can, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. Yeah. Well, you've got a following of like 67,000 people, so it's little wonder you bump into people uh, in the hallways of events on a regular <laughs> basis. And uh, according to your profile, you've been online and tweeting since 2008. What, um, yeah. what kind of switched you on to Twitter in particular and um, what's the whole Twitter experience been like for you? So I actually started writing my blog and from a social media point of view, that's kind of where I started. I remember uh, sitting on my um, porch one day um, and just reading about blogging and I said, oh, that seems pretty interesting. Maybe I'll do something. <laughs> and I just started and that's how Cloud Musings began. And uh, it's grown pretty significantly. We're getting about um, 90,000 views a month on that. But I started tweeting to interact with my readers on Cloud Musings. And that just exploded um, and started to meet people, but also learn more about what's going on with respect to cloud computing and cybersecurity from a global basis. I sort of got out of my local bubble. Yeah. Well, it does have a global reach. Uh, I'm always astounded by the number of people from different countries that just ping out and reach out as if they're kind of sitting across the table from me. Right. Uh, and just the uh, connectedness of, of just being as if, you know, sitting opposite the table to me as we are now, but I could be talking to someone from anywhere in the world, whether it's China, India, mm -hmm. uh, Germany, you know, Ukraine, wherever. So let's just quickly talk about some of the topics that you uh, generally focus on. So the homework I've done on this so far, I mean, you're a technical author, which we'll get to in a moment uh, with regard to your book. Um, you're a consultant and instructor. You cover cloud computing from top to bottom. Uh, you're across cybersecurity like no one I've ever read before. You've, uh, you're a, a solid brand in, in cognitive computing. Uh, and all around, I think it's fair to say, uh, you're a thought leader at so many levels I couldn't count them. You're also a, a, a certified cloud security instructor, a CCSP. Uh, what uh, brought you to become a CCSP? So. I've always been focused on cloud computing. When I was at IBM, I left IBM in 2006, but before then I was in mobile, wireless, and voice. I was a worldwide sales executive for that. Um, and the service-oriented architectures, mobile devices, and e-business, all of that merged into cloud computing. So it was sort of a, a natural for me to transition into cloud. But the very... Um, 
first obstacle you ever get when you're thinking about cloud computing is security. So I started reading more and more about security. And because of the changes in business models and mission models and the need to for the IT professionals to really understand what their business and mission owners are doing, I just started focusing on the data and understanding how to protect the data. And that's how I got into teaching the uh, certified cloud security professional because most IT professionals really pride themselves in their ability to do things how to configure things, what the technology is, how many letters you can get behind their, their name. Yeah. Uh, but in cloud computing, you don't get the opportunity to touch the technology. It's, it's abstracted from you. So how do you do security if you can't even touch the technology? Yeah. So that's why it seems so important to, to, to teach IT professionals the difference. Well, you're absolutely right in that. One of the first things that I learned when I started moving things to the cloud was um, a phrase that I'd heard many times where people say cloud is just other people's computers. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Uh, but um, you hear these lines about you know, Microsoft and others say, well, we've got like 3,000 people working on our cloud platform. They're always going to beat you at security, trust us, etc. So I found a lot of the, the, the standard practices and the standard design principles and patterns that I would do with on-prem could in effect be put in the cloud, but I couldn't touch the things. I couldn't see the routers and the switches and right. I couldn't see the SAN and the server itself. I couldn't check the BIOS. I couldn't see if the encryption was actually really configured on the disks or not. Right. And so I had to then wind back and unbundle all those pieces and effectively work from the worst possible trust scenario and make sure that I ticked and crossed all of the T's and I's as a yeah, yeah. Um And so it's interesting you've gone down that route. And I, I think when we think about what we're doing now with particularly what we're hearing this week here at uh, IBM's uh, Interconnect 2017, when they talk about data first. Uh, it's an interesting view that I think when you go data first, you, you start naturally to think about the protection of your data and the security of your data and then the, the ecosystem around that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I always say that the first rule of cloud computing is never to trust the infrastructure. Yeah. And the second rule is never to trust the user. So this is all around data security. Yeah. So you have to not only understand the data, but classify the data and understand who you want to share the data with. You may not know how they're going to share it or how they're going to use it. And in fact, that's one of the benefits of cloud computing. You don't need that a priori knowledge, but you still need to understand how it's being used, where it's being used. Definitely. One of the things I've also found on that topic was that uh, when people come out of the traditional legacy environments, mm -hmm. let's just say it's a, it's a D big DB2 database. And right. It's a known trusted platform. People have been using it for decades. And then you start using some of the new modern database platforms that are in the cloud uh, that people tend to lead to, whether it's, it's NoSQL or Bimodal. Yeah. Um, you often do an ETL dump and put your data up into the cloud, but a lot of the metadata around the controls and the access and the security components are lost, and you've got to refactor that in many ways and say, well, who should see this row and field and record and table, and who's got access to the schema? Um, and that's a non-trivial exercise in my experience. Right. Is, is that kind of your experience? Do you find that you know, when people, or do you, do you think it's more the case that the databases are relatively similar and that metadata does still carry across? Well, actually, you're touched upon two distinct 
massive changes when it comes to cloud computing. First of all, going from relational database construct to the NoSQL. Um, that really represents the rapid change from structured data to unstructured data. Mm -hmm. um, it also is looking at the change from serial data processes to parallel data processes. Cloud computing really is valuable because you can do parallel processes. Yeah. Um, traditionally, that was very expensive and very hard. The other thing is that storage used to be very expensive. Moore's Law took care of that. So storage is cheap. Google really revolutionized the business with search because they recognized that storage was cheap and there was no need to structure data mm. in order to save money on storage. Yeah, yeah. So they leveraged the power of parallelism and that's why we Google everything today. So the, the second aspect you touched upon was the metadata. Metadata, or data about the data, is really what you need in order to classify your data. If you don't know that, there's, that you're holding data on, uh, let's say, a European Union citizen, where privacy laws are completely different than privacy laws in the United States. You need to understand how to handle that data. And the metadata gives you that, that information and that insight. And the insight is needed so that you can change or modify your processes, your business processes. I think, I think that's probably one of the most poignant things we're gonna cover this morning. And that is that you know, with, the, with the new regulatory requirements from Europe, uh, we've always had very stringent requirements from North America. Yep. Australia, uh, along with Germany, are, are probably one of the most stringent on privacy. When we have this, this privacy act that goes back forever yeah. around what data can and can't be held inside government, outside government domestically, outside the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, there was an interesting thing. Mark Andreessen ages ago, and I'm sure you know this quote, said that the software is going to eat the world. <laughs> I think we've learned more than ever, particularly last year at the World Watson event, uh, certainly now at IBM Interconnect, that I think it's a given that data is actually in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it, the thing that's really driving decisions sort of in the background, and people don't recognize it, is this data sovereignty issue. Yeah. Just recently... Russia actually shut LinkedIn down because that. LinkedIn wasn't following the, the laws with mm. respect to the use of data on Russian citizens. This was basically a shot at any international organization. And today, if you're on the cloud, you are inherently international. It's a given, right? Yeah. And, and you never know where your next user is going to come from. Uh, whether it's a bot crawling or whether it's someone from the other side of the planet. And there was a great comment, and I forget who it was, unfortunately. I wish I could credit them with it, but there was a great comment one of the keynotes yesterday where someone said that um, regulatory requirements and governance is only going to continue to increase. It will never reduce. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, uh, you know, I wrote it down at the time because I thought this is, this is a really solid punchline that I need to take home with me back to Australia. And that is that we are never going to see a time where the regulatory requirements on organizations of any size, whether it's a mum and pop organization in a garage or somebody the size of IBM, where the rules that they're going to have to follow are going to reduce. 
they may consolidate in some form into a slightly bigger policy, but right. it's going to get more and more complex. And particularly now that people are more and more empowered with this whole, um, I guess, celebrity experience, where people are now taking control of data, taking control of the experience around their data. Companies are having to now kind of meet the user at their game rather than telling users to meet them at their game. And it's going to be an interesting time. I want to segue quickly. There was a great quote, actually, just to jump into here. You, mm -hmm. On your uh, Twitter uh, profile, actually, you have this quote. And I'm going to read it out quickly and just get your um, comment on it. You say that analytics inserts punctuation around data, ordering it into sentences and paragraphs. We need to gain basic understanding and new insights. It was interesting because I think that in a, in a single sentence paraphrases what this whole week here in Las Vegas has been about um, in that when we think about data itself, I mean, we, we're, I think we're entering an era now where data almost describes itself and the business logic follows the data. And when we've seen people come up with concepts like fog computing, edge analytics, edge computing, right. you know, once upon a time we bring all the data back to a central data station, a, a, a database or a data center, and then we started sort of moving into centralized cloud locations and, mm -hmm. and then even with content delivery networks, we sort of still had copies of the data in fairly centralized locations, but now, when we've got aeroplanes that generate two and a half terabytes per, per flight. Right. You know, I did the math once, it's like um, 87,400 flights a day domestically here in the USA. And the new Airbus A330-1000 uh, is gonna generate two and a half terabytes of data per flight. So with that math, if every single plane in America was at the current level of BIOS of the modern plane, <laughs> that's 220 petabytes of data. We're never gonna copy 220 petabytes of data across any network to a central location or multiple copies. Never. Um, and so I, I think more than anything, the, the line that you've just given us there um, describes the challenge we've got ahead of us. And that is that we've, we've kind of start, we have to start thinking about not, not just the data first piece, but also the type of workloads and analytics we want to perform on that data and what we want to get from that data. In the day-to-day -day work that you're doing, not so much just in security alone, but across all the data analytics, is that a punchline that you coined because of what you've seen or is that something you sort of saw ahead as a thought leader and now sort of started to apply in people's minds to get them to think along those lines? This, did you witness that and, and make a comment on it or is yeah. that a comment you sort of put together as a thought leader? So I was, I was asked what was the uh, power or why is data analytics so important? And you, you brought up the fact that uh, seeing an airplane is creating all that data what about all of the autonomous vehicles that yeah. are running around, the, the, the cars and underwater vehicles, um, even the drones that are going to be delivering your next package from, from Amazon? Yeah. Um, where is that data? What are the laws or the rules that are covering that, that data? This is why the IT professional really needs to broaden their understanding uh, of the world. You're not running the infrastructure anymore. You are really managing the, the, the data of the world. Yeah. So you have to understand the legal ramifications, the business ramifications, um, the personal privacy ramifications. Um, in the past, you've always been told as a professional, don't do anything without talking to your lawyer. Do you think your lawyer understands cloud computing? No. Your lawyer is going to be coming to talk to you. Absolutely. Now, analytics takes data and then delivers insight about that data. And the insight is what drives the actions of an individual 
and of an organization. So that's what I meant by put the punctuation around the data. Without punctuation in words, you'll just have a bunch of letters and it has no meaning. But once you put the punctuation in, then it goes, it transitions from just data to information. With information, you gather insight. Yeah. That was sort of the thought process. And, and th <clears throat> that drives us into the idea that we, we're now more and more data-driven yes. uh, entities, organizations. I mean, you know, um, humans think that they're in control of their lives, but really they're driven by the data and the, the influences around them that are powered by data. That leads us into an interesting thing. You mentioned autonomous cars, and I did some homework on autonomous cars recently for another mm -hmm. event I was part of and speaking at. And it turns out that the average autonomous vehicle is estimated to produce four petabytes of data a day. <laughs> right. You know, by the time it has LiDAR and sonar and other things, and then all the other tracking and tracing. Now, obviously, it doesn't store it and keep it, but it just generates that data. And that brings us into an interesting um, question, and that is that, you know, which of that data needs to be then kept and stored? Because in, in a scenario where, for example, Mercedes have uh, put out a prototype of one of their autonomous vehicles, and they've made it one of the most expensive models by the sounds of things, and they've actually come out publicly and stated they've had to get the programmers to codify philosophy in that they've had to get to the point where there's some logic built into the car as an autonomous vehicle to work out who to kill in an accident. Does it drive into a pole and stop the car quickly and potentially hurt the passenger uh, that owns the car or is paying for the service? Um, or does it run over an elderly person on the corner who's got less life to live? <laughs> right. right. So now we're asking programmers to think about data in real time, particularly at the scale of like four petabytes a day in an autonomous vehicle, and codify philosophy. So again, data drives a lot of that thinking because what data have I got access to? And how quickly can I get access to that data to make a decision? Because this car is doing you know, 50, 60 kilometers an hour at the least in a built up area and needs to instantly make a decision on, I'm about to have an accident, I've detected a scenario where I can't get out of having an accident, do I run over the puppy dog, do I run yeah. over the grandma, or do I, do I hurt the guy in the car? And like, you know, that's a, a whole podcast in its own, but you know, <laughs> do you think that people even have begun to conceive that challenge that you just alluded to there a moment ago, which is, or even highlighted more so, around the fact that people are having to think about data in such different ways and understand the holistic view of the world, not just, what am I doing this, uh, you know, use right. subscription form, or what am I doing with this bank statement? Yeah, and I think um, you have unwittingly crossed into a, another area, and that's cognitive computing. Absolutely. Listen, nice segue. A, a human, even if you had all that data, your brain cannot process it and respond in enough time. So naturally, you would need to have something like the IBM Watson that's collecting all that data. And now, who makes the decision hmm. if the puppy dog goes or grandma goes or you go when you go into the tree? It's going to be a cognitive Absolutely. computer yeah. somewhere. And it's not just Watson. Things like um, the Salesforce Einstein, that's all about customer relationship management. Hmm. All right. So, and there's more and more cognitive beings <laughs> being uh, created. In fact, the, the, there was an interesting line from um, the fellow from Twitter the other day in the uh, on day one's uh, keynote, mm -hmm. uh, where he said that 
when we think about um, what we're doing with cognitive, and I think the, the uh, folk from um, Salesforce have say, said the same thing, that businesses now don't need to think about finding users. They don't need to think about uh, where the data is coming from. Platforms like Twitter provide the users. Platforms like Salesforce have already got the customers. Adding cognitive into that now just allows those people who are leveraging those platforms, right. whether it's Twitter for social and, and some sort of social enterprise bus in many ways, in my view, or whether it's Salesforce for their CRM and, and other functions because it, you know, it's an extensible platform. Um, they can now start to think, well, how do I apply cognitive to some of the challenges I've got? Is it, you know, do I use it to classify PDF documents that people are signing by hand and scanning and sending in, um, you know, whatever that use case might be. Um, with what you're doing every day, are you seeing people come to grips with what cognitive is going to mean to them or are they adopting it? Have they, have they started to do some trials and proof of concepts? Are they putting it into practice? What, what's your general sense on the ground and on a day-to-day -day basis of what you're doing professionally beyond these events? I mean, the events like this are great because right. we've got you know, 25,000 birds of a feather. But when we would go back home, um, in your experience with who you're seeing, is Einstein being used broadly through Salesforce? Is Watson or the Watson data platform being used in places in your experience? Or are people still just figuring out how to dip their toe in? So I don't think the masses really understand the advances that we've seen in cognitive computing over the, over the past few years. Think about it. You go and do your taxes in the U United States and you sit down at a computer People are used to things that they can see and they can touch, not the virtual infrastructure that's behind that computer. So the fact that a cognitive being, Watson, is sitting there interacting with you just doesn't register. Yeah. All right? They don't, when you are um, a salesperson using Salesforce, I really don't think that day to day you say, oh, I'm talking with Einstein, mm -hmm. yet another cognitive being. And the fact that one, Einstein, the other, Watson, are now going to be communicating to one another, yeah. what, what does that mean, right? If you're, you, I'm sure you've seen Terminator. And that's what people think when they think about cognitive beings. But that's not reality. Um, I love Terminator just like everybody else. But we won't get there anytime soon, ever, I, I believe. I, I totally agree. In fact, <laughs> I, I'm very much of the view, and people poo-poo me on this, but I don't think we're ever going to get to Terminator. No. Because when we think about Terminator, the movie, it's a, we've essentially um, uh, humanized this concept of a, of a robot and, a, and an AI and a whole range of other things. I mean, robotics is really hard. You know, getting things to be bipedal is really difficult. With, mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole bunch of labs doing that around the world. Um, the cognitive piece is hard, and then the sentience is really hard. Um, in fact, there was a really interesting comment made by Ginny Rometty when she was on stage uh, yesterday, yeah. um, where she said that humans um, make around about 5% of errors in a number of things, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's listening to a, a sentence spoken, written, whatever the case may be. And she said that at the moment, they've got Watson down to 5.5%. Right. You know, so it's, it's essentially half a percent away from being relatively similar to human cognitive. But... As you said, it's it's behind the data entry form, it's behind the analytic engine, it's behind the database platform, and it's making decisions similar to us in that it can potentially see and hear and speak, but it isn't packaged up in a Terminator three-dimensional <laughs> robot that's no, going to chase at all. us and, and put a fist through the back window, right? <laughs> right. And, and, and I, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, my personal experience has been very similar to yours in that, um, and I'm going to jump into a segue with that in a minute with regard to Australia, in that... <laughs> 
Um, not only are people struggling to come to terms with the concepts that the likes of Watson and, and Einstein present, because we've been exposed to the likes of Siri, for example, for, mm -hmm. for nearly a decade, let's say, and then we've had sort of you know, the, the, the Google Assistant. Right, and Alexa and, and all those. People have, And Alexa, exactly. And people have thought they're AIs. When they're not. They're really just digital assistants. And you can't have a conversation. In fact, I, I made this comment the other day to someone, and I said, well, do you talk to your phone, or you talk, do you talk with your phone? Because they're very, very different. They're talking to yeah. Speaking to my phone, saying uh, Alexa or, or, or Google or, or Siri, what's the time? I mean, that's just speech to text, yeah. a database query, for example, or whatever the case might be, or some other business logic component in an app, and then, and then you know, text to speech again. Um, so I'm talking to my phone as opposed to talking with, with my, my phone. phone. And I think right. that's the shift we're now seeing with what we can do with the likes of WhatsApp, uh, where we can talk with our phone, which will be really nice additionally. Do you think humans are ready for that, though? I mean, if we take the Terminator image away, we strip all that down just to the current experience we have with computers, um, where we're talking to them potentially. Right. Do you think we're ready as humans to talk with our computers and with <laughs> our apps? I mean, because it's, it's quite a big leap, I think, for hum humanity in general. It is, but you also, if you, if you think about it, humans aren't just, um, they just don't communicate. There isn't, uh, with words, there is an analog aspect of communication that these machines actually we're not even using not even not even addressing watson is great but if you're talking to watson you can't see the facial expression you can't yeah. see yeah. the hand wave and 75 uh, percent of the communications that you have with a human is non-verbal so even if Absolutely. all of the sentient beings in the world were human-like, mm. you would still miss maybe 75% of the communications capabilities. Ginny actually touched on that at World of Wads, and actually just to recap on that, um, one of my biggest takeaways from that event last year was when she got up in, in T-Mobile Stadium in front of, I think it was like 23,000 people, uh -huh. and she touched on five key points, which I won't go into in detail now, but it was essentially like, you know, health and, um, uh, music and, and a range of things around that. I made a note about the fact that they were humanities topics. They were topics about humans and human things and human yeah. interest. And, and and you're absolutely right about the gestures. I mean, just us sitting here and, and, and the eye contact and the hand gestures, that's a big leap away from software just helping to fill in forms. Right. You know, when you go to Google and it, and, it, and it sort of predicts what you're going to type, and we think that's AI, when really it's actually just predicting based on an algorithm that said that a million other people within the last 20 minutes looked for the same thing. Right. Um, I don't personally know if humans are ready for it. I, I think the, the, the beautiful people, the 1%, are ready for it <laughs> because we've had exposure to a lot of technology. Um, but then other people I talk to argue that maybe you know, the rest of the world is just going to switch on to it and just get it because in the same way they just got mobile phones you know smartphones yeah. came out and they just got them so maybe I'm, I'm wrong and I don't know it's, it's not that I don't think they're ready for it to, to learn about it I just think there's going to be some sticker shock element to people who've had little or no experience with technology in general and they're going directly from so that that experience that we've seen you know villages in, in the Amazonian forest where airplanes fly over and, right, and, 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 and they start shooting arrows at it right, right. Um, I think there's an element of that coming where the bulk of humanity hasn't had access to technology, hasn't had access to the kind right. of stuff we're talking about. I think it's been an interesting time. I mean, you know, my, my parents' generation and their parents' generation saw TV and radio come in and 
that was an interesting little shift for them. We've seen the internet and, and computers come along in a, in a different sense uh, than my parents' generation. I don't really know if we're ready for cognitive at that level, but I, you know, definitely in the applications for form filling, I just don't know if we're ready for the, for the human piece. Now I'm going to jump into um, a, a quickie here. There, mm -hmm. was, there was an OMG moment I used today, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Um, uh, one, I want you to explain how your ear became famous. <laughs> but you got a selfie with Ginny Rometty. How did that happen? Walk us through what happened there. Yeah, because everybody yeah. was leaving the stadium and, and you must have hung around and met her. That so, was wild. So, yes, it was, kind of, it was kind of interesting. I mean, I was invited here as a social influencer. Um, and one of the things you always want to do as a social influencer on Twitter is try to get a picture. <laughs> And, and as we've said many times, it's not real unless you get a selfie. <laughs> so, so, so I happened to be fairly close to wow. the um, chairwoman Rometty, and so I said, "Why not go for it?" So, um, a couple other um, of um, uh, people were there also. Um, Joe Wein uh, Weinman, for one, and and he asked, <laughs> as he said, just a random person to uh, take a picture as we do often yeah. in nowadays. So the, uh, we all got together with um, uh, Jenny and took the picture and behold, the only thing of me on the picture is my left ear. <laughs> <laughs> You got the full horizontal selfie. Yeah, and, and so right shortly after you that. Like a, you look like a very happy fellow. So shortly after that, you know, uh, Jenny was very gracious enough to say, okay, let's take a let's take a selfie together. So I got I got my OMG moment with uh, with uh, the chairwoman. Awesome. That's fantastic. <laughs> and they're the kind of things you just take away for life. She seems so down to earth. She is so very valued. Yeah, she is she is she is very nice, very smart, and was just Amazing to be able to sit there and, and, and talk with talk with her. When you think when you think about who she is, I mean, um, as Mark Benioff from uh, Salesforce probably yes. the best job I've heard for a long time of, of essentially just congratulating her or, or even recognizing her as a person beyond the CEO, beyond mm -hmm. the chairman role, beyond IBM. I mean, globally, here's a woman who is working for LGBT rights, um, women's rights. You know, girls who can code, etc. Yeah. I mean, she just came back from China and, and put together a deal with the Wonder Group. I mean, who would even imagine that this person could do all of that in one day and still run one of the most successful and long-running and and physically large organizations on the planet and still catch her breath and get on a plane and come to an event like this? What's really amazing. Yeah, and then take a selfie. Right. But think about the vision this woman has. She not only has the vision but the stamina to execute on exactly. that vision. Yeah. Um, and, and this is just simply amazing. Well, I'm certainly in this. Now, I'm going to, uh, we talked about this earlier on, so I hope you don't mind me jumping into it. I want, sure. I want to throw a couple of these uh, rapid-fire, 30-second thought uh, uh, sound bites at you. There are three key things in particular that we've taken away from the last couple of days that IBM has sort of presented to us, and the concept of enterprise strong, data first, and cognitive core. Uh, if you don't mind, can I just throw these at you one at a time and get your 30 seconds sort of just quick off the top of your head, not overly thought through. So mm -hmm. Enterprise Strong, what does that really mean based on what you've seen the last couple of days? What's IBM trying to convey with Enterprise Strong as a concept? Ready for business, ready for the mission. Whatever you need to do, 
enterprise strong cloud means that you can do it uh, with the assurance that that your data, your private data is protected and that you can also leverage that data to communicate and interact with um, your ecosystem. So that's enterprise strong. Perfect, and you touched on a key point there where IBM highlighted yesterday at one of the keynotes I went to, where you put your data in their cloud and they're not gonna monetize your data for their game. Right. And there's gonna be governance and control around who has access to your data. Um, even within your organization. So whether it goes into Watson, whether it goes into the um, Watson data platform, whether it goes into Watson machine learning, mm -hmm. any insights, any value that comes from that data is exclusively yours and there's governance around the place to protect that, um, which I thought was a really interesting takeaway because that's one of the big fear factors as you outlined around yeah, the absolutely. security early on. Second point, data first. Um, 30 second rapid fire on data first. What's IBM conveying with that topic? Data describes the world. And without that description, you can't get insight into what's happening and you can't make decisions. So the first place you start has to be the data. Fantastic. Third one, cognitive to the core. And I really like this. I'm actually going to get t-shirts printed. Out that, <laughs> yeah. um, now we've heard it for, for three days actually, because it was also um, tabled at the um, Open Tech Summit on day mm -hmm. zero, I'm calling it on Sunday. Um, which was really, I guess, a bird's feather meetup for, for open source techies. Cognitive of the core in 30 seconds. That means having a vision for the data. If you, just having data doesn't mean anything. The metadata is very important, but cognitive is bringing meaning out of the data and the metadata. And if you have a vision that your cloud is cognitive to the core, that means your cloud will provide, has the vision to help you analyze, understand, and draw out the true meaning of your data. Wow, they're almost like tweets just written. <laughs> I'm gonna circle back to you now because uh, the, the main uh, driver for, for not just catching, getting time with you with this podcast was to get to know you, Kevin yeah. Jackson. You founded a project called GovCloud Network in 2013, so that's roughly about uh, three and a half years ago. Can you give us a quick outline in a couple of minutes of what GovCloud Network is and what brought you to, to create that concept and, and how that's running so far? Sure, absolutely. So GovCloud is government cloud. When a few years ago I was um, in an enviable position to be helping the federal government develop governance around the uh, Federal Risk um, and uh, Authorization and Management Program, or FedRAMP. And this is the governance for the United States um, government community cloud. I uh, had the opportunity to uh, meet and work with Vivek Kundra, who was uh, President Obama's um, Chief Information Officer. Wow. And I also worked with NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. There was a, there was a, group, a group of us. So um, GovCloud sort of had its genesis there because many organizations really didn't understand what cloud was. In fact, the agencies couldn't do anything, you couldn't contract because there was no official definition of what cloud right, was. Yeah. Um, and when uh, Virk Kundra announced the cloud-first policy, they actually couldn't do anything. <laughs> so yeah, there was no rules, no, there was no, rules no governance, no policies. Yeah, no one knew, knew where to start. Right. 
So GovCloud Network was my attempt to start to educate the government marketplace on what cloud computing was, what FedRAMP was going to be, how agencies could enhance and improve their missions through the use of cloud computing. Um, since then, other industry verticals have actually looked at cloud and, to be honest, they've overtaken the government industry with respect to the use of cloud. So now GovCloud Network actually supports multiple industry verticals with respect to digital publishing um, and education. You, know, you touched an interesting point there. I, so I spend quite a bit of time consulting to the federal government myself not so much state government, they seem to be a bit more tuned in. Mm -hmm. And when you said that enterprise was able to overtake government, I mean, you, they don't necessarily have the same compliance and regulatory requirements. And, and they're a lot, right. they're often, you know, we see like the digital natives or the cloud natives as people talk about them, you know, whether it's the Ubers and the Facebooks. I mean, they don't have, they make up the rules as they go in many ways. They sort of, they do things and ask for forgiveness later, but you can't do that in government, can you? No, no, you can't. You, you can go, literally go to jail if you don't do the right thing. <laughs> yeah. well, well, you can do that. <laughs> and uh, some recent re yeah, recent history in the United States, you can see how, well, how that happens. It indeed. <laughs> yeah, but, well, you leave the country. Yeah, leave the country and don't come back. Tweet from Russia. <laughs> so, but, you know, there is a big difference between a commercial um, uh, industry vertical and the government. In a commercial, a CEO makes a decision and everyone else says, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and you, you go ahead and do it. Yeah. The measure is the stock price. If it tanks, no longer you no longer CEO. Yeah. The government, on the other hand, has a much broader mission. Um, the uh, you don't keep score by the amount of money the government makes or the amount of money that the government spends. You keep score by how does constituents right. feel, how yeah, they yeah. live, how they act. Yeah. Uh, so it's a completely different mindset. I I often look at it from this point of view. I once came up with this uh, coinage where when someone asked me the difference between working with federal government versus mm -hmm. enterprise, I said, well. People leave the office at 5.30 on a Friday and go home and go to soccer and football and baseball and they don't sweat the detail. If government goes home on Friday night, the lights go out right. on the country. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. It's a really different, it's a different ball game. Now, um, you were recently in Australia for this very purpose. You were in my capital city. <laughs> I was in Canberra, um, a beautiful city, by the way. Tell us a bit about what you're doing there and who you're doing with, or you probably can't disclose it necessarily, but tell us what, what sort of, how did that come about and, and what did it entail and, and uh, when sure. can we expect to see you back in Australia? So, first of all, I hope to get back there as soon as possible. Fantastic. Um, I was invited uh, to come and present a course. Um, as, I, as you said earlier, I'm an instructor for ISC Squared, Certified Cloud Security Professional. And uh, some of the government organizations are looking at leveraging cloud, and as always, security is the very first aspect. So I delivered a five-day course on cloud security um, and how to best leverage cloud with respect to the, um, the government mission. Um, while I was there, I had a, a couple of meetings um, with a cybersecurity organization uh, there in the uh, Australian government. And, and they, they 
hope, I believe, they, they've asked if I'd be interested in collaborating with them. So I'm looking forward to, to going back and, and working more with uh, with the Aussie government. I'll be definitely hoping to engineer that for you. <laughs> um, interestingly, um, there was a delegate from Australia that came across for a security conference recently and the government actually reached out to a bunch of us. Unfortunately, I had another commitment so I couldn't make it. But the Australian government was pulling a whole range of cyber risk, cyber security professionals, particularly yeah. with the cloud focus and also big data analytics focus. They didn't touch on Cognitive though, which was disappointing. And they brought them across from, um, I think it was like the RSA conference from memory. Uh -huh. And uh, it was just a resounding success because all of a sudden the government was leading again in a space that it had been in catch-up mode with. How, with that in mind, how do you think countries like Australia rate uh, on a global scale, not necessarily just against America, but against the rest of the world? How, does, how, do you, how did you perceive the Australian government uh, to rate as far as their, their preparedness, their readiness, their awareness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are we sort of, you know, on a one to ten, are we kind of a three or a five or are we a seven uh, as far as how we're coping with cyber risk, cyber security, and cloud preparedness? Right. So, to be honest, I would say that Australia is probably on par with uh, countries like the UK and the US because they're really focused on trying to leverage it. Okay. The countries that are really out in front are Singapore and Estonia right. where they have taken this idea and they started working it years ago and they had small, smaller populations yeah. and they, uh, because of their government structure, they were able to operate and work much faster than these larger, larger countries. Those are the ones in the world. Yeah. Well, I guess they can bet the farm on it in many ways. I mean, I, I remember uh, reading recently that Estonia essentially transitioned the entire nation to blockchain, for example. Yes. Um, what's your take on that kind of shift? I mean, that, that's a holy grail move. It's like all or nothing, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. And, and blockchain is really um, amazing in that this is not new technology. Mm. Just like cloud computing isn't new technology. Yeah, yeah. Cloud computing is efficient and effective because of standardization and automation. Blockchain is taking things that were basically laying around on the floor and putting them together so that you can have immutable um, data, right? So that you could create information and data and prove that it hasn't been changed yeah. in any way. Um, well, it's a really big math problem, isn't it? I mean, I, I recently yeah. drew on a whiteboard, someone said, well, explain blockchain to me. And I, I said, well, imagine this is block zero, and it's got a checksum, and then, and then we link block one to it, and it's checksums made up of its own content and the prior block. And I did that out to five or six blocks. And I said, well, that's not so bad. And you get to the fifth block, and you can still technically do the math by hand, but then you get five billion blocks out. Right. And with, with Bitcoin, for example, and I read recently, we, and I had a look at the, the latest stats, I mean, we've created more Bitcoin than there are particles in the known universe. <laughs> That's yeah. really big numbers. Right? So to get to the last block in the Bitcoin and to try and change it, you have to go and recalculate the checksum for every one of the other blocks in the chain. Right. And if there's more Bitcoins than there are particles in the universe, it's a very non-trivial mathematical problem. So much so that uh, Bitcoin mining is actually one of the greatest consumptions of power on the planet. So yeah, far. I heard Bitcoin uh, mining is now an affecting global warming. <laughs> well, that's kind of scary, right? Yeah. And then when you think about the fact that that's just one copy of it, and then you, you know, I think the last time I looked, there's like roughly 2,600 copies of the full blockchain replicated around the planet, which Australia proudly is, is, is out in the front of. Uh, <laughs> you've then got to do 
you know, trillions of, of blocks mm -hmm. recalculation, and then you've got to have roughly two and a half thousand copies of those trillions. I mean, it's, it's, it's not only a non-trivial exercise, you just physically can't do it. We don't have the math. Even with a quantum computer, it would take a few seconds, I'm Right, sure. right. And then we touched on it in the last couple of days with some of the stuff that people were talking about here at, um, at Interconnect. But I think, you know, there's still quite a long way, you know, as far as people coming to groups with things like just big data, cloud analytics, and, and even cognitive is still kind of leading edge. So I think, you know, blockchain's going to be one of these things where I don't know that we need to get ready for it. I'm really keen to get your thoughts on this. My view is I don't know if people need to fully comprehend it or get ready for it, because I think, like databases, blockchain will just be built into the technology and we'll just take it for granted. Is that your kind of take on it as well? Right, absolutely. So blockchain isn't really about Bitcoin. No. It's about data provenance, mm -hmm. right? And everything, as we've just talked about, is being driven by data. So if you can leverage um, blockchain to ensure data provenance, no matter what infrastructure you're using, you can really then see the power of combining blockchain and cloud computing. Yeah. And this was one of my biggest takeaways here at Interconnect 2017, that IBM has taken sort of the giant leap forward to say, look, this is really about the data. It's really about data provenance. And if you can take blockchain, put it with cognitive, and protect the data and deliver it anywhere through the IBM cloud, that's a game changer for any industry. I think we get to the point now where things like blockchain are going to have to be built into the DNA of the things we have for all of those reasons. Yes. Because when we think about uh, you know, the key themes of this particular event uh, that I made note of, what's in data platform, what's in machine learning, the whole concept of data management, platforms like Hadoop and Spark and, and all the other things we're seeing being presented, the, the key theme is data, data, data. Yes. Um, and it reminds me of, of the, the quote from, I think it's Sherlock, uh, you know, data, 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 I can't make bricks without clay. Um, <laughs> you know, there's very little we can build without data. But coming back to that point of data governance, um, when we think about the challenge of data governance of not just putting things in the cloud, but we're then cloud bursting from on-prem mm -hmm. to cloud, public cloud, and maybe they're secure public cloud. But with things like the, the Watson data platform and putting data in there for various reasons, with Watson's machine learning, we're moving data in and out of tools and platforms. And what's your thought thinking around the challenges that organizations are facing when they may have a data lake in the cloud, right. but they're pushing out into platforms like Hadoop and Spark, they might be using machine learning on demand to do some form of classification. The challenge of tracking and managing the governance around that data movement, general thoughts on kind of what that looks like from a from a control point of view given your, your experience in, in security in particular in the cloud I and mean, how do we how do we get ahead around the idea that I'm going to take some data and just push it into a machine learning engine for a period of time like the Watson machine learning platform right. and then bring back the insights how, how do I get my head around the idea that my little bubble that I would normally protect my data lake with gets a few little spikes poked into it to get to other systems yeah this is one of the biggest challenges around IT today Things are moving so fast, our culture can't catch up. Yeah. Okay? Um, and a cultural change necessitates understanding and knowledge um, and experience. And that's sort of where we are sort of falling behind. The faster technology changes, the less 
percentage of society actually experiences right. those change. Yeah. And if you don't experience the change, you can't learn from the change. That means the culture doesn't change. Yeah. Um, so this whole idea of, of, of data, being able to exchange data, uh, machine learning, the, the, um, the industries, the companies, they haven't built governance to take into account all these changes. Well, we saw some, when I started doing some writing on this topic uh, years ago, I used the example of the impact of radio and yes. the impact of TV, right? And when you talk about um, the exposure to the data that people have and, and the experience they have with it and the transition of their, their coping mechanism with it, when, we, when radio came along, it was in our face. We could hear it and we were impacted. And things like advertising, there weren't laws around advertising, so people got away with murder for a little while. Yes. And we controlled it. And then TV got the same thing. And if you look at things like the Vietnam War, America reacted very badly to that because of the release of color TV and cheap TVs on people's kitchen tables. Yeah. And they were like, the news and the data was right in front of them. They, they, their reaction was very solid and strong and immediate. And there was governance and controls and laws around that. But when it's something like data and the tools, the, the machine learning tools, the analytics tools, the the cognitive tools behind the scenes, we don't see that, as you said, and I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I, I think we should blog that. Um, <laughs> that it's, it's, a, it's a tangential thing. We, don't, it, we, we get the output and we experience the benefit, but we don't interact directly with it necessarily. Even talking to Siri, I'm really just throwing words at it. I don't really know what's happening with the thousands or hundreds or millions of machines behind the scene and the software. Whereas yeah. TV and radio was right in my face. Well, um, you stopped. You kind of stopped at radio. What about Twitter? We're now getting yeah. all of information interaction through Twitter, and there are no rules and laws on, on Twitter. Wow. Um, yeah. Some say <laughs> that uh, the, uh, the current U.S. president is the first Twitter president, and some, some actually credit yeah. his ability to leverage Twitter to sway the, the electorate. All of that is data. Who's yeah. using yeah. that data? How's it being used? Um, where is it being used? Yes. So this is this is well, I interesting. Think it, I think it's it's well and truly on record. In fact, that Obama was made uh, was famous for having leveraged data and analytics to get into his first and second term. Absolutely. I the current president Donald Trump um, not only did that, but leveraged social and other components that that modern people, uh, certainly young voters, were were in, being influenced, and it was their new reality, right? Right. Um, I want to circle back to a topic that we sort of just touched on with machine learning particularly because I think AI and cognitive and, and a whole range of these things like blockchain, they're, they're all well and good because they're coming at us, yeah. but they're not necessarily in everyday life yet. But I think machine learning is in everyday life currently in, in my experience and it's being used in a number of ways because it's fairly accessible technology. Even if it's a case of like I'm filling in a form and sending it in and a computer looks at the the PDF and pulls things out of it and then makes some sort of determination around whether I've completed the form correctly and whether it's going to take that semi-structured data and put it into a structured data into a, into a traditional uh, SQL database. Right. Um, can you give us your views on, on what the impact of machine learning has been uh -huh. uh, of late with the types of organizations that you deal with day to day? So the power of machine learning is actually not in, I believe, not in the interaction with humans. It's an act, interaction between machines. It's the machine-to-machine -machine space. It's the ability for your car to talk to the car next to you. Yeah. It's the ability of the washing machine to talk to Watson and then to talk to a haven, 
for instance. This is where everything is going to revolutionize our lives and revolutionize society. And we won't see it because it won't be with us. It'll be yeah. part of the, the fabric of life. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> what, um, that in mind, I mean, the, the, you mentioned before there's a big shift from on-premise of the traditional database environments to uh, cloud and, and, and cloud-hosted environments with yes. no SQL databases and so forth. Um, machine learning is completely changing the way that we do that behind the scenes, inside the fabric. Um, um, heavy lifting of some of the, the thinking. Um, what does that mean to the likes of DB2 and other, uh, what some people might say, legacy data yes. platforms? But you know, I, I don't really like the word legacy because they're, they're still being used every day. And I mean, there's an entire stream here for it. With the likes of DB2, what does it mean for DB2? Does machine learning just make it more relevant? Does it give it current relevance? To, is it going to go away? What are your general thoughts on platforms like DB2 and other large traditional OLTP and, and relational database systems? So I'll address that by saying, aren't we in a paperless society? So why are you sitting here with a paper and a pen <laughs> and trying to write when you have a computer? because that's the right tool for the job. Good point, yeah. DB2 is the right tool for some jobs. If you have a serial process, um, if you have a, where it may be not economically feasible to change a process or to rehost a process, the relational database the tools that we use for that will always have a place in the world. You nailed it in one. That was like the best 30 second soundbite ever. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've been hearing it from CIOs and DBs, DBAs around the whole country in Australia that they are absolutely fed up with this cloud, cloud, cloud concept because they see less than 2 to 5% of the data going to the cloud for any reason immediately and their stronghold is we're staying with the DB2s the world or whatever it might be yeah. because that's what we know, that's what's solid, that's what's secure, that's what we've proven and that's the technology we currently have right. and we'll start to think about cloud as and when it makes sense. So I think you're absolutely right and I've actually written it down because I like that line DB2 is the right tool for some jobs. Yeah. Right? Relational database management systems and SQL in particular is not going away. It's not going there's away. There's still a lot of investment going into it and a lot of adoption. And, there and there's a lot of value. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't want to put all those petabytes right. running around into uh, any database or even data lake, do we really? Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, with, with the topic of data lakes, I mean, What's your general sense of the size of the average data lake? I mean, people talk about data lakes being petabytes and so forth. I mean, my general sense is they're not. They're, they're hundreds of terabytes of unstructured data in different forms. What have you seen out there as, as far as the day-to-day -day practitioner, practitioner goes, as far as the average size and scale of the data lake? So, um, I don't know what the average size and scale is, but I do know that people still hoard and protect their data as if their own. It's just like the older versions of data centers. How did you build a data center? You'd go to the organization and say, what do you expect? And you'd carve out a particular square foot. And that was their data center. They're part of the data center. Data lakes are the same. We're not integrating the data in data lakes yet. Every organization has its own bit of the pie yeah. because they haven't figured out how to apply governance across the entire organization. Well, that leads me to one of the last couple of things I want to touch on because I know I've taken up a lot of your time. We're getting close to the Oh, no problem. 
Um, I want to say uh, uh, thank you very much for a gift you've given me. Um, the listeners are not going to be able to see it, so I'm going to describe it. <laughs> I'm holding a hard copy cover of your Practical Cloud Security uh, across industry view, a book you've written on the whole topic that you focus on, um, and it's personally signed. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> no, uh, my pleasure. There's nothing that gives me more joy than reading somebody's uh, book and having a signed copy. <laughs> um, give us a couple, a couple of minutes on, on uh, what brought the book about, um, what caused you to, to write it, mm -hmm. um, what's in the book, and, and, and why people are going to now go and buy it straight away and, and have the same experience I'm about to have, and thank you very much for it. Um, it, it, it looks like a, a fantastic tome of everything I can imagine I need to, to, to know about practical cloud security. Give us a couple of minutes summary on what kind of drove you to write it, what's in it, and, and what can people expect when they buy, buy a copy and, uh, and read yeah, it. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about data, but we haven't really addressed what's distinct about data. Yesterday at the uh, uh, IBM chairman's uh, uh, talk, she talked about the fact that Watson understands different industries. Industry A uses data and sees data differently than industry B. Yeah. So doesn't it make sense that if you're going to be in a cloud, you'll have to protect it differently? You have different laws, you have different rules, you have different regulatory bodies. So that's what the book is about. Data protection, yes, is very important, but the industry to which that data is related is also important, and it may drive or limit the security steps that you may need to take for that data. So in this book, we looked at um, data for healthcare, we looked at data for finance, we looked at data for government, and we said all of these are going into the cloud, but each of them have different priorities with respect to how and whether to protect the data right. and what the regulatory controls are on that data. Looking through the uh, table of contents, I mean, it, it covers almost everything I can imagine from general cloud user perceptions, the economics of cloud computing, all the way through to deployment models, managing risk in the cloud, um, policy, all the way through to policy and compliance. I mean, this is a this is a really in-depth book. How long did it take to prepare and, and get from the idea to the first yeah. draft and publishing? So my co-author, yeah, my co-author uh, Melvin Greer, he's currently uh, with Intel, and he's driving a lot of the work at Intel around Internet of Things. Right. And we worked together for quite a few years around cloud and cybersecurity, and we were talking about the fact that cloud, the general cloud, was sort of overshadowing all the distinct differences with respect to the industries. Right. Um, and that drove our discussion. We also did a study for the Cybersecurity Institute um, in Washington, D.C. And that study was uh, a bunch of interviews with active um, chief information security officers. And we asked them things like, you know, are you going to the cloud? Um, uh, why not? Uh, which type of hybrid IT infrastructure do you expect to use? What type of training um, are you having or do you give to your team? Yeah. Um, what type of support? Do you sit at the table with respect to decisions? And those, the responses in our interviews also showed a wide disparity 
between different industries. So that actually drove uh, the, the, the book. Well, I, I can't wait to read it. it. It's called Practical Cloud Security, a cross-industry view by Melvin Greer and Kevin Jackson. Um, check it out on Amazon, I guess. Yes, it is available it. on Amazon. It, it looks like an amazing And thank you very much for it again. No, thank you for the um, opportunity. Now, before we wrap up, because we're getting to the top of the hour, and thank you so much for making time available. And I, I absolutely loved meeting you in person. We've had some great selfie moments. <laughs> this was good, yes. Um, uh, I've, I've got this fun pun, if you like, play on words, um, around uh, what's on the horizon for the rest of 2017, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, what's on the horizon. IBM's going to love it. Uh, in a couple of minutes, just to wrap up really quickly, and thank you again for your time, what do you see coming up for the rest of 2017, just this year, not beyond that, but just this yes. year? I mean, we've still got the bulk of the year ahead of us. Um, in, in rapid fire form, what's the general sense of what the rest of the year looks like with the con within the context of what we've seen this week? Because I think we've seen some pretty astounding things this week. Yeah, so first of all, it's not about cloud. You may now be surprised by this statement, but it's about hybrid IT. It's leveraging cloud with traditional IT, with IT that you have and IT that you don't have. This is at the heart of the digital transformation of just about every organization in every industry. So this digital transformation demands understanding. It demands the knowledge. So this year, organizations need to gain that understanding, gain that knowledge in order to be successful. So to, this year is about how do I leverage digital transformation and how do I leverage cognitive computing in order to build my position within my industry? You, you touch on uh, something that we refer to generally as bimodal. Um, yeah. I had someone recently on Twitter uh, refer to it as by muddle because she, <laughs> she thinks that uh, people are fuddling through. I said that I'm a Harry Potter friends, uh, fan, so I think it's actually by muggle. I think, <laughs> I think it, we need some magic in, in this whole thing to yeah. make it work. Um, Kevin, look, it's been a fantastic hour to hang out with you. Thank you so much for making time to catch up with us. No, thank um, you, Des. I really uh, enjoyed I, it. We I need to do it again. We to do this again. Yes. We're going to find reasons to get you back to Australia. This time you're going to stay in Sydney, not Canberra. All right. <laughs> and uh, again, thanks so much for the book. My pleasure. And it's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you for an hour. And um, I can't wait to do it again soon. Great. Thanks.